Recent attacks on healthcare providers that seem to have originated in China and a steady stream of intrusions of retailers through point-of-sale systems seem to have become everyday events. Hello, I'm Eric Charbro of Information Security Media Group, and to discuss the wave of recent breaches and what organizations can do about them, I'm pleased to be joined by John Pescator of SANS and Ron Ross of the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Welcome, John. Welcome, Ron. Good afternoon, Eric. How are you doing today? I want to get to what organizations can do about breaches in a moment. But first, I'd like you to characterize the recent wave of breaches, such as those against community health systems. What's different about these intrusions of the past few months and those of just a few years ago? Uh, John, why don't you start? It's really been going on for a couple of years that the major incidents are in search of specific forms of data or types of data. And they're using much more targeted techniques to target a particular company, a particular type of data, even particular people within a government agency or company or healthcare provider as the most likely way to get to that data, whether it's a Chinese hacker, a Russian cyber criminal, or a U.S. cyber criminal. That's been the biggest change, and and that's what's challenged a lot of the, both the defenses, the detection systems, and the, and the breach response plans people have had in the past, they weren't built around those targeted, stay hidden, keep going long type attacks. Do you have any idea why these changes are occurring, why these actors are getting, getting involved? Probably two of the biggest reasons are, one is some of the low-hanging fruit is gone. There's been more deployment of various security controls that took away some of the broad paths, broad, easy ways to get in. But I think the, the biggest reason is because it works better. These attacks work better, make more money for the cyber criminals, or meet the objectives of government intelligence analysts on the U.S. side and on the Chinese side to get particular types of information. It's just, you know, it's a, the maturity model for the attackers. They've moved from maturity level three to maturity level four in, in the attacks, and the defenders need to do the same thing. Ron, the attacks get more sophisticated all the time, but there's the target-rich environment. And I think one of the things that we, we continue to see, there is, there is a lot of improvement, as John said, on the, on the defensive side. We've seen uh, a lot of folks, they characterize it as cyber hygiene, but some of the things that have been addressed with the, uh, the DHS Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program, where they're looking at buttoning down the infrastructure with regard to better asset inventory, better configuration settings, and also faster patch management, trying to close the time on target that the adversaries have. But all of those things on the cyber hygiene side still leave open a very large area of territory that we have to close long term. And that's what we characterize in the NISTA projects that we're working on is the build it right part of the problem. How do we try to reduce and manage this ever-growing complexity of the IT infrastructure? Uh, the director of NSA used to have a saying that the adversary lives in the cracks of complexity. And the more uh, applications we bring in with mobile and tablets and all the things that we routinely bring into the infrastructure now, which is a great testament to the terrific technology that we have produced by the greatest IT industry in the world, uh, all of that is making us more productive. We're using it to the maximum capacity, but it brings in some inherent risks in that complexity, which I don't think we've come to grips with to this point. Eric, to amplify something Ron said, one thing that's definitely happened is even companies or government agencies that were doing pretty well in security, they'd addressed cyber hygiene, they had breach responses in place, that things changed under them and they didn't react. So they were really good when the major threat was email viruses, or they were even pretty good when maybe they did something about phishing, but then they outsourced email. They went to you know Google Mail or Office 365 in the cloud, or they 
started allowing, they outsourced uh, HVAC maintenance to a third party like Target did and gave them access into it. And they didn't adjust their security processes for all these conditions that changed underneath, but the attackers quickly did adjust their attack. Let's delve into this a little more. I mean, it sounds what you just said, John, about uh, Target and giving its HVAC contractor access. Sounds like that there was a breakdown and perhaps simple, solid security controls. Is that the case? I think you can use this broader example of third-party vendor access as a, a common pattern for how uh, what might have been secured one time when third-party vendors were given access to remotely manage or operate their systems, all of a sudden huge holes open. So uh, Ron mentioned you know, cyber hygiene and, and, and one key element in the uh, what's called the critical security controls or in the NIST controls or anything is secure network engineering or segmentation. When it used to be that your own employees maintained the HVAC systems, it was one thing. When you outsourced it, when you're going to have untrusted people accessing your network, very key to have some segmentation between the untrusted people and, in Target's case, the credit card database, which obviously they did not have. A lot of things change once you go to outsourcing or you, you start consuming things as a service versus running it yourself. And all too often, the, the security processes are not reevaluated and updated. Knowing that, what should these organizations be doing? I think we have a dual problem here. I think that, you know, we've got this one kind of, if we're attacking the advocacy around two fronts here, we're, we're doing a pretty good job on the cyber hygiene side with all the things that we know. I characterize the cybersecurity problems as being above the waterline problems and below the waterline. Above the waterline problems are things that we see and we feel and we touch every day. This, this would be the patch management, the asset inventory, configuration settings, all the things that we talked about previously. But the things that are below the waterline, the things that are actually, as John mentioned, in the architecture and engineering aspects with segmenting resources and doing criticality analysis and actually affecting the, the strength of mechanism and the trustworthiness of the underlying components of the infrastructure. This is a problem that is truly below the waterline. A lot of consumers can't really even get access to the kinds of security controls that are buried in the operating systems or the database management systems or the HVAC, the things that consumers typically are, are off their radar. When I look at this problem, this is why I think some of the things that John and his uh, group at SANS do, the, the education aspect of this problem is really important to make sure that people understand what they can do on their level above the waterline, but they have to start to be um, better consumers and, and demand of industry that industry uh, do their part as well to do the below the waterline, which means building better component products, component products that are more trustworthy, stronger, more penetration resistant. And then if we use some of the techniques and principles and some of the international and IEEE standards, uh, in the system engineering world that we're working on now with our new 800-160 publication, as long as consumers understand the, the scope and the breadth of this problem, then we can engage all the folks in what I call the essential partnership, combining industry, government, and academia to, to work together, pulling in the same direction, understanding where we can contribute to, to solving these difficult and challenging problems. I'm listening to you, Ron, and it seems that you're, you're, you're asking for the vendors to do a lot more. And until they see profit in it, I question sometimes, will all, all these vendors do more? 
It's always been the way our society is set up in our private sector and our capitalism and all the things that you know are part of who we are. It's always been a consumer-driven, a demand-driven society. So as consumers, we have to demand the same types of things. I, I talk about the how we build bridges and how we build airplanes in this world and automobile safety has gone from seatbelts to airbags where I used to have to buy as an optional feature my airbag when I was uh, a lot younger. And now all this stuff the airbag, the seatbelt, the steel reinforced doors. That comes standard within the automobile product line that's delivered to consumers because consumers demanded it. Government had some role there, even if it's not a regulatory role, even if it's done for the right reasons. I think that's what has to come together. Industry is doing a lot today, but the question is, are all of us doing enough? That's the real question. John, why don't you take that? Are, are, are they doing enough? Well, by consumer... I don't look at the end user of software in the business and the government sense. The, the consumer is really the CIO, the guy who owns the budget or the person who owns the budget that's buying software and systems, yet is not saying, make sure, A, that the software you sell me has been tested for commonly known defects, or even worse, too, that the CIO is not saying, hey, the way we're going to operate this software is going to be done securely and reliably. The dirty secret about security is, is about 80% of what we do is make up for deficiencies in IT operations. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Why isn't that Windows system configured securely? Why isn't the system patched? That's not security's job. That's IT operations. Why are there 27 web servers when the configuration management database says there's 14? So on the CIO side, when you look at the organizations with the fewest damage-causing breaches, you don't always see the best security program. You almost invariably see the best-run, best-governed IT organization because if they're doing configuration management right, security has many fewer vulnerabilities to remediate. I agree with Ron that if you buy crap, they'll sell you crap. Not that the vendors will move if you don't make them move. Ron talked about seatbelts. Well, think about reliabilities of automobiles. No driver told the automobile industry, hey, you want to adopt ISO 9000 and make your suppliers provide higher quality doors and sub-assemblies. The automobile industry did that to increase their profits and reduce the amount of money they spent on warranty repair. Unfortunately, we don't have warranties in software, so the people buying the software, which is not the end user, it's the CIOs and, uh, that are running things, they need to be driving the suppliers to higher levels of quality. Going off of maybe a little tangent, are we thinking about IT security wrong in the sense and helping prevent these breaches by thinking of two separate organizations, the IT organization and the IT security organization, operations, IT security? One of the things that's held us back for many, many years, and I've, I've talked about this a lot, is the failure of the security discipline to be integrated into the mainstream of an organization. When John talks about the CIO or if it's the mission owner or the business owner, uh, we've had kind of a disconnect. The security folks sit in this little office down the hall, and, and you hear these stories all the time. We never build it in. We never bake it in. Well, that's because the folks who understand the security business are not really stakeholders around the table, uh, especially in things like enterprise architecture, systems engineering, acquisition or the, the life cycle, the system development life cycle process. So you end up with security ending up as a cost center. People are always looking at it as an added cost and it's a drag on the system instead of an investment in the protection of the business or the mission. And that largely gets to the point I talked about earlier is the Defense Science Board report about a year and a half ago did a study and, and they categorized uh, the different types of vulnerabilities and they basically had three different classes. We have the known vulnerabilities that you can see every day and that you're patching against 
and all those things. Then you have the, the unknown vulnerabilities, which are the zero days that you know you don't know about until the adversary actually exploits, and then it goes to the, the known side. And then there's the, the ones that are created uh, you know, from the advanced persistent threat where they breach and they establish a presence in the system. Two-thirds of those vulnerability types are really off our radar, and they go undetected. Even if we're doing a lot of things right on the cyber hygiene side, if we don't have this holistic view of the problem where industry is in the strength of mechanism and the quality of the software and, and the systems that are being produced for our customers, and we're not there asking for those kinds of things, then we're probably going to continue to see these types of breaches until we reach whatever pain point is going to be that tipping point where we say, hey, it's like the old movie that the guy's yelling out the window, I'm, you know, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm listening to both of you, and I'm getting the impressions. There are things to do, but it's going to take time. There's lots of things to do. There's two key issues. One is, which are the smartest things to do first? The second thing is, how do we force change into areas that security doesn't control? And, and you know, again, things like procurement, getting... Yes. Uh, Security terms into procurement very key. Today, there's a news item about the DOD placing some more security requirements on, on suppliers. But there's also a news item about the DOD saying Amazon Web Services passed their cloud security controls so the DOD will be able to use cloud services because that supplier did demonstrate enough security in the FedRAMP program in the government side. What I really believe has been missing in lots of talk about security, everybody assumes business managers or CEOs don't understand security, or we got to get it across to them, the next big breach, finally they'll get it. No, they understand it. It's that people have not been standing up with solutions to their problem. It's like as if a business manager came in and said, hey, we need to make more money. And the CEO would say, okay, tell me how we're going to make more money. And if the business guy said, well, I don't know that, you know, just I want you to understand we need to make more money. Yes, they understand security. What's been lacking out there, you see a lot of talk about information sharing about threats. There needs to be a lot more information sharing and the highlighting of what approaches are people using that actually work. Did you ever notice you haven't seen in any of the breaches in, boy, at least the last five years, any of the large insurance companies whose entire product is ones and zeros. They have no physical product. It's all information. Yet they're not breached, even though they have credit card numbers and social That's because they, they have taken approaches. They do things, better configuration management, use of advanced threat techniques, ways of, of being much safer than the average company or, or agency connected. But you know, everybody's hesitant to share the success stories. We all like to talk about the planes that crashed versus share the stories of the pilots who landed safely in, in, in every storm. Well, that's, that's a good point because the people who announced their success are instant targets. Just one other area. Is there anything that organizations can do better in responding to these breaches? There's almost like there's three classes of examples out there. One is the people who just botched it at every step. They didn't notice quickly. They made all the wrong moves. They didn't tell the customers. And then at the opposite end are the people who who do it very well. You know, they, they have a plan in place and, and they execute the plan and they update the plan. In, in the middle, I really think most enterprises need to test their incident response plan to make sure it still works. They used to know if there's a virus that starts hitting people's PCs, here's what we'll do. They're not really that ready if they get a call from a customer saying, hey, you know, I bought shoes with you, and the next day my credit card got used in Singapore a thousand times. They're not yet re ready for that side of things. It's an oldie but goodie. Doing regular penetration testing 
of your critical crown jewel systems, both to see if there's paths in, but also to test out your incident response process. It's the same way people learn to test out their backup generators on their data centers uh, versus just hope when the power went out that they came on. That, that's proven to be a very good path to kill two burns with one stone, do some regular penetration testing. There are certainly things that you can do on the proactive side that aren't classic uh, technology areas like the incident response plan. I would also mention the contingency plan. If there ever was a need for a good, effective, well-exercised contingency plan, it's, it's today. In this day and age of the modern threat space and the kinds of complex infrastructures we're building, you can be assured, based on all the threat data that we're looking at over the past decade, that at some point your system's going to get breached, and the real question is, what are you going to do when that happens? And, and that plan just can't be shelfware. There's sometimes criticism about uh, too much FISMA paperwork. Well, there's good paperwork and there's bad paperwork, and certainly having a good contingency plan, incident response plan, making sure they're, they're extra Everybody understands what they have to do, when they have to do it. That literally can mean the survival of an organization or a business in today's world. And I don't think we can take that for granted today because everybody is so dependent upon that common denominator called the computer. It's in everything we do. That firmware and that software drives everything. And even if you do everything right, you can still have surprises like the heartbleed vulnerability that was talked about a, a month or two ago. There will always be one more thing that will come up. And we've just got to have contingency plans that are prepared for as many things as we can anticipate and, and try to survive so the system is as resilient as it can be. Eric, let me bring up what's sort of a political hot potato. I don't know if Ron could really go there. A good incident response plan from a business perspective or a mission perspective is detect the incident as quickly as possible and stop it, cauterize the wound, stop the damage immediately. When an intelligence organization looks at an incident, they tend to want to let the incident continue and sort of learn what the bad guy's doing, learn who the bad guy is, follow the bad guy, learn about the bad guy. Some of the worst incident response plans happen when the focus is on collecting information about the threat versus protecting the mission. Those two objectives are often at direct odds, and there's been so much emphasis on who's doing it, Who's doing? Let's learn about it. I remember a while back, I believe it was out of the Department of Homeland Security, where they detected some attacks against water systems, and they asked the providers to let the attacks continue so they could watch these guys. And of course, the water companies are like, "What are you nuts? We can't take that chance." You know, the best incident response plans don't necessarily feed the needs of, of sort of surveillance and intelligence. Thanks, John. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Eric. Okay, good to be here. That's John Pescator of SANS and Ron Ross of NIST. I'm Eric Chabro. Thanks for listening.